Wow, praise God, praise God. Let's give God a round of applause, family. Alicia keys for Wu. We have our own Alicia in the house. Wow, Alicia. Normally back up, but such a wonderful voice. We're truly blessed. Family, um, I've been tasked this morning with opening up our series in the book of Exodus. So I trust that everybody's been reading the book of Exodus. Exodus is one of those amazing books where it's not really difficult to understand. You can jump straight into it. It's not an epic narrative. It's not a, a book like Revelation where you need deciphering. It's, it's a historical book. And I trust all of you have been reading the book. If uh, you have, I can gladly go take my seat. And I won't do a, a roll call this morning. So uh, before I do start, I just want to give thanks and honor to our pastor, my close friend. And um, I think I thank him for the opportunity. It's always a blessing and a privilege to stand on the pulpits and share God's word. Don't take it lightly. The word of God does say that teachers should be more wary because judgments will be worse on teachers. And um, you feel the weight when you stand up here. Before I came up um, a couple of weeks ago and I'd said there's two great fears. It's public speaking and death. And I want to add one more. It's coming after this man because, you know, I've seen uh, our pastor grow. I've seen him grow in the word of God. And, uh, you know, that's now my third fear is coming to preach after him. So thank goodness he hasn't preached over the last couple of weeks. But I do thank him for the opportunity and thank the church also for affording me the opportunity to share God's word. Today we'll be in the book of Exodus. Um, I'll go as far as Exodus 3. So if you wouldn't have even had to read that much into the book of Exodus. So give you, to give you a brief outline of my sermon today, I would just like to do a brief recap of how we got to Exodus. And that is the summary of the book of Genesis. Um, just to understand sort of what contention arose at the time of Exodus. And that was the new Pharaoh that came about. Also to give an overview of uh, the book of Exodus. Also the approach and how do we interpret the book of Exodus. Um, also finding the gospel because we understand that the gospel is central to the, 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 this entire book. Finding the gospel in every book is, is, is paramount, it's key. So I'd like to cover the gospel in Exodus. Also I want to introduce you to a man, his name is Moses. Uh, the first three chapters, the first two chapters in essence talks about Moses. And then we are introduced to the main character, the, the star uh, in the black community. They call him the staring, the, the main guy. And that is God. God is central to the book of Exodus and the narrative, and we'll be introduced to him in uh, the third chapter of Exodus, uh, where he calls himself the I Am, and I will close there. So that is giving you a synopsis, an overview of what we'll be covering. So uh, my wife and I were, were discussing, you know, we were reading through the book of, Ex of Exodus, and, um, you know, we found something really funny in there, that Moses married, um, he married his first wife, and then he married a dark-skinned African woman. And funny enough that he changed the law that you shall not have other wives after this. And, <laughs> and I was like, Moses wanted to keep the dark skins to himself. It's like he found that treasure. <laughs> we thank the New Testament that I could also have my dark skin beautiful woman. So uh, when we get to, uh, to the book of Exodus, before we get there, I just want to take us through from the beginning. We start in the beginning to understand why the context of Exodus is so important, why this book is so important in the context of the whole Bible. It colors the whole Bible and colors the whole redemptive narrative. First, we understand that uh, God created man in his own image, Adam and Eve, um, and then man rebels against God in the Garden of Eden. We know the story. Uh, then sin enters through one man. Um, Paul also says that through one man, that redemption was, was, was brought through the obedience of, of one man and through the disobedience of one man, sin entered. So man is cast out from the presence of God as soon as uh, he's, um, and then we find soon after that man's heart is filled with violence and corruption. We see that in, in the story of, of Noah. And then we find that one man found favor in God's sight along with his family and was saved uh, through the flood and the descendants of Noah then obeyed the commandments of God to fill the earth. Um, those sons were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Really, really amazing story to go and research. I've done some research on it. And um, you find that those three sons, you find that Japheth, the, the, some say the first son, went to the northern part of the world, which is Europe. His sons were Gog and Magog. You find that uh, the descendants of Russians. And you find that the, the Chinese also uh, descended from Japheth. So you find the table of nations um, going from them, Ham, migrated south towards uh, northern Africa and sort of around the Middle East. And then you find that Shem, his other son, which is the son of promise, where, where Christ came from. Shem then migrated towards the Arabian Peninsula, where you find the word Semitic. You heard the term anti-Semitic. It comes from Shem. Uh, that's all the tribes that you find now in the Middle East are descended from, from Shem. 
Uh, we find then man stand in, in, in rebellion, open rebellion against God in the Tower of Babel, and God confuses their languages. Something interesting I found, found also when reading Genesis 11, which is the account of, of, of Babel, that you find the same, the same substance that they, that they had built the Tower of Babel with, they built it out of mortar, and, and this, this tar substance was exactly the same substance that they coated Moses' basket with, and that was to retain water. And you find that rebellion, that they said, Lord, send your flood again. We're ready for you, because they made this thing waterproof. And it just shows the heart of mankind at that time, that they were so openly rebellious against God. They said, do your worst. Send another flood. We're ready for you. We'll build our tower to, to heaven and be like God. So that is where mankind hearts was filled with, with rebellion and murder. And then we find from there, God scattered them and about 70 families scattered from there. And one of them's name was Eber, where we get the word Hebrew from. So we find that he is the great, great, great grandfather of Abraham. So we find that God creates or establishes a covenant with Abraham. Uh, God makes an everlasting covenant with Abraham that all the nations and descendants will be blessed, with the, uh, blessed through him. Then God establishes this nation of promise through the son Isaac and later through Jacob. The twelve nations then get the nation, uh, get the name Israel from Jacob, who wrestled with God. The name Israel means one who contends or wrestles with God. Then the sons of Jacob um, then sell their brother Joseph into slavery. We know the story, and then we find that there's a severe famine, and through that they had that eventually moved down to the land of Egypt, and it is. In, in, if you look at the timeline, it's about 400 years from when, when Jacob goes into Egypt. 400 years later, we find that Moses being born. And there's this funny thing about 400 years that God has. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a 400-year period where God doesn't speak to any man. And you find likewise here that you don't find God really engaging with man, speaking with man, up until we get to Moses in the burning bush. And there's a significance in that, that God is revealing himself firstly to, to the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, and then you find that Moses, uh, sorry, sorry, uh, um, yeah, Moses is then encountering God here. So we find that in this time, in this uh, few hundred years that uh, they are in, enslaved in Egypt, that they, that they flourish from 70 people. So it says 70 people because Joseph was already in, in Egypt. 70 people multiplied to between estimates, some people say between three and four and a half million in about 400 years. So that sounds a little bit like the Elliot family, but um, building that nation. But that is exponential growth, exponential growth in a short space of time. But this is God's providence that God flourishes them under, under um, Egyptian rule. So we get to the point now where we get to Exodus. Exodus starts off with these, with these words in Exodus 1.8. It says, then a new king who did not know Joseph came into power. And so with, with these ominous words, Israel's time amongst the Egyptians turned from prosperity to persecution. So what once seemed like a promising place to grow, uh, to grow into a godly nation became a house of bondage. And God never intended uh, Egypt to be the promised land. And if you want to see why Canaan... You know, I was doing some research on this, and it's so deep. The Bible is only, uh, I think Bevan put this uh, status up before, it only, the Bible only yields its fruits to those who are diligent. It doesn't yield its fruits to the lazy. So if you're not willing to search, go and research for yourself why Canaan. Why did God send specifically Israel to go to the land of Canaan? Why not Egypt? Why not Syria? Why not Babylon? Specifically Canaan. And go back to Noah's, Noah's children, and you'll see the reason why in there. But what I want us to see here is that he created contention in this, in this period. God created this period where there was a pharaoh that rose up that didn't know Joseph, that didn't understand that we have an agreement with these people, and created contention in order for them to move on to their next phase. And sometimes we find that in life, that contention arises in our lives, in the workplace, in that relationship that God didn't ordain for you, in that friendship that is causing you harm, in whatever circumstance that you have in life, that God creates tension in that circumstance like we might have to look for a church one day soon of our own. God will create uncircum uh, uncertain circumstances around the, where you're sitting. That relationship, that boyfriend or girlfriend, that, that, that person at work, whatever it may be, God creates uncomfortable situations in order for you yeah. to migrate and move from that difficult place because God has something different for you. And I know from my personal experience, we all have an account of this from our personal experience that God will do this sometimes. And this we need to understand in our lives that God will create tension around the circumstances to move you into where he needs you to be. Yeah. So maybe the job that you have, maybe the relationship that you have, maybe whatever it is, the, the career that you're following, the plan that you have for your life, whether you need to move or whether you need to stay. God sometimes does that in your life. 
So we need to, to understand that. And also, the adverse of that is that God will also put you in difficult situations in order for you to trust Him. And the application of that is, look where Israel is situated. Now we're seeing it a lot in the news, right? You see the war between um, these rebels and you see Israel in contention. And look in the middle, Israel is placed between Egypt, between Syria, between Jordan, between Saudi Arabia, between all of these contentious nations. And if you're going to read the Bible, it's exactly the same nations that, that caused them strife back in the day. Babylon, Assyria, all of these different nations, the Edomites, the Jebusites, all the ites were around them. And God purposefully placed them in that because they had no choice but to trust him. And you'll find the last battle of Armageddon is when all nations will surround Israel, surround Jerusalem, and Israel will have no choice but to trust in him. And this is sometimes God will place you in these circumstances where you have to trust in him. So sometimes you're in a place now. So I'm not saying when you're having strife, God is creating a, a, a roadway for you to leave. No, I'm saying that God is creating circumstances sometimes where you have to leave a circumstance where you're moving into these promises, but also you've got to trust him in those difficult circumstances, that job, that difficult boss, that partner, that, that husband or wife that's giving you grief. You've got to strive through all of that and you've got to trust in him to save your marriage and to deal with those difficult circumstances. So this is where we are here in this narrative where Pharaoh rises up and God uses Pharaoh for his glory in the circumstance. And I always wondered why does, like did Pharaoh not even have a chance from the get-go? It's one of the questions that I don't have an answer to yet. Like did this guy not even have a chance? Was God hardened his heart to the point where like, it's like he didn't have a choice in this because God created that tension. You know, God uses a vessel for honor and he uses it for dishonor and he chose to use Pharaoh to glorify himself. If there's no Pharaoh rising up against Israel, what would have happened? They would have said merciful Pharaoh who released Israel and not God, who, despite the circumstances, was able to freeze people. So when we're understanding the overview of Exodus, so Exodus is an epic tale, right? We understand we've seen movies made about it. We've seen so much, some media, so much is made of this great story. This is a great, great, great tale of the, the Old Testament. Uh, so it's an epic tale of fire, sand, wind, and water. Um, so the adventure takes place under the hot desert sun, just beyond the shadow of, of the Great Pyramids. There's two mighty nations, Israel and Egypt, led by two great men, Moses, the liberating hero, and Pharaoh, the enslaving villain. Almost every scene is a masterpiece in this book. The, we see the baby in the basket, the burning bush, the enslave, uh, we see the river of blood, we see plagues, we see the angel of death, the crossing of the Red Sea, the manna in the wilderness, water from the rock, thunder and lightning on the mountain, the Ten Commandments, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, the golden calf, the glory of the tabernacle. It is, it is a fantastical book filled with glory and filled with great, great, great works done by God. So once we hear the story, it's never forgotten. For the Jews, it's a story that defines their very existence. And this is commanded by God. He says, remember, I'm the God who brought you out of, Israel, uh, out of Egypt. This is, this is God who wants people to see this. You can imagine the, the, the scenes. You have these millions of people fleeing God, doing all of his wondrous works. It would have been on the news, on Twitter, Instagram. You would have heard, did you hear what happened? Even you find Rahab, the prostitute, when she welcomed the, the spies into her house. In, and what, what did she say? For I know... I've heard about this God of yours, like rumors were spreading across the world. This is what God wants. He wanted to provoke people to jealousy, to serve him through this one nation. This was God's plan. This was the intention that God had, is that through, the, through you, through this nation, I'm going to provoke people into jealousy. We've heard about this great God, what the miracles he's done. He parted seas, he sent plagues, he destroyed the, the greatest nation at the time. This is the God that is center of this book. So when we're approaching this, this book, Firstly, we need to understand that I just want to go through four approaches and interpretation of the book of Exodus. We need to understand context, right? What is the text without context? We need to understand the setting, the time, the place, the people, the nation. What is the customs of the time? So when we're approaching the book of Exodus, the first thing I want us to look at is that um, Exodus was a great, uh, the great miracle of the Old Covenant, right? So uh, many passages in Psalms and the prophets look back to this paradigm of salvation, the people of Israel always praise God as the one who brought them out of Egypt. So we need to understand, to have a complete understanding of the gospel requires a knowledge of Exodus. Because Exodus is the gospel of the Old Testament. And we'll see that in our second, uh, second point. Second point is our approach to Exodus must also be historical. So when we're looking at Exodus, firstly, we need to understand it in the context of the gospel. Secondly, we need to understand it in the gospel, in the context of a historical setting. This is a history book. This is not a fairy tale. This is a book of history. 
Uh, this book is not just merely a story, it presents itself as a history, and thus the only proper way to interpret it is to accept that one true account uh, of history of God's people. The third point that I want us to look at, that our interpretation of Exodus must be theological. Theology is a study of God. So Exodus is a study of theology. When we study biblical books, uh, when we study uh, the biblical history of the book of Exodus, we discover the real hero of the story is God. God is the one who reveals himself to Moses as the great I am. God is the one who hears the cries of his people in bondage. He takes pity on their suffering. He raises up a de deliverer to save them. God is the one who visits plagues on Egypt. He divides the Red Sea. He drowns Pharaoh. God is the one who provides bread from heaven and water from the rock. God is the one who gives the law on the mountain of the tabernacle with his glory. And God, from beginning to end of this book, is a theological history. This is the story of God. Make no mistake, Moses seems to be the main character here, but no. Moses takes into stage in the beginning when we meet him. But God is the main character. God does all of this because it is for his glory that he did this. So we, to read Exodus, therefore, is to encounter God. This is an encounter with God. The book is about mercy, justice, holiness, and glory of the Almighty God, who rules history by his sovereign power and who saves his people of, of his covenants. So when the biblical writers recall Exodus, they they rarely mention Moses at all. Instead, they speak of the wonders of God. When you go read the New Testament, they'll always mention God. You don't find anything in terms of the righteousness of Moses, rather the glory of God and the miracle working power of God. So, as I mentioned, that we cannot read. You can go read the most obscure books in the Bible and you will find the gospel. What They have what you call shadows and types in the Bible. So, Christ only had come at a certain point, 2000 AD. We understand when he came in. So, everything from the Old Testament was pointing to his first coming. Everything in the New Testament is pointing to his second coming. And we understand that when you look in the Old Testament, you will find Christ who wrestled with Jacob, broke his hip. We find that there's shadows and types of Christ in the Bible. You will find him in the most obscure parts. What is the ark of, of, uh, of, of the Old Testament? But a, a type and a shadow of Christ. Those who entered into the ark were saved. Those who entered into Christ in the New Testament are saved. Christ is the type and the archetypal picture in the Old Testament, you will find him everywhere. Everywhere. You cannot read the book of, uh, you cannot read this book without finding Christ in the Old Testament. So when we see the book of Exodus, as I mentioned, it's the gospel of the Old Testament. So if our approach to Exodus is theological, then it also must be Christological. And that means the study of Christ or Christocentric. In other words, we must understand Exodus in relation to Jesus Christ. The Exodus finds its ultimate meaning and interpretation in the personal work in the Son of God. It's Christocentric. The entire Bible, as I said, is about Jesus Christ. The theme of the Old Testament is the Savior to come. The theme of the New Testament is the Savior who has come and who's going to come again. But because Exodus is the gospel of the Old Testament, its connection to Christ is especially strong. Jude went as far as mentioning in Jude 5 that he said that Jesus delivered these people out of Egypt. So in many ways, we find these connections between Moses. Moses is a type and a shadow of Jesus Christ. We find that there's ex many examples. Joseph is another classic example. You can find many comparisons. One was sold for 30 pieces of gold. One sold for 30 pieces of silver. One was, was uh, between two thieves. And, you know, there's many, many comparisons between those two. But I want to look at Moses and Jesus here. So in many ways, Exodus sets the pattern for the life of Christ. Like Moses, Jesus was born as a savior. And was rescued from his enemies at birth. He also made a journey and spent time in Egypt. Uh, for it is written in, uh, in Hosea 11, 11 verse 1. It says, out of Egypt I call my son. It is prophesied that he will go to Egypt. Prophesied in Matthew 2 verse 15. Um, so like the children of Israel, Jesus passed through the waters of baptism. Also like the Israelites who wandered in the desert for 40 years, Jesus wandered in the wilderness for 40 days. Um, so he wandered for 40 days. Jesus went out into the world for 40 days. So upon his return, he went up to the mountain to give the law, much as Moses who came down from the mountain with the law. So we find that Jesus went up to pray in the mountain when he appeared um, to his closest disciples. Uh, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared to him, uh, appeared to him in, in glorious splendor, and they spoke to Jesus. So we find that these comparisons are here. And, uh, you know, we've, we also see in... Um, there's many connections with Christ that show that Exodus is not just the story of salvation, but the, but the story of salvation. Israel's deliverance from Egypt is anticipated salvation, accompanied once and for all and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the interesting thing I think has been mentioned from this pulpit before is that when, God, when Moses asked 
God to show, he said, Lord, show me your glory, show me your face. And God says, no one can see my face and live. No man can see my face. I dwell in unapproachable light. And he saw, he glanced at his back and Moses at his end there. But we find that God is so merciful that we find on this Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus goes up, who shows up on the mountain to see the fulfillment of God. He gets to see God face to face in glorious splendor. God is so faithful. God is so faithful, family. The fourth thing I want us just to look at, and the last thing that I want to note is our approach to Exodus. It must be practical. So in order for Israel's journey out of Egypt to be part of our pilgrimage or our journey, we must also apply the spiritual lessons in our daily walk with God. He's given us this book of Exodus like he's given us all books. Um, in in, in, in the, the book of Timothy 3.16, it says that all scripture is God-breathed. Every single verse, every single obscure genealogy, the book of Numbers even, family, it's even given to us for our, for our benefits, that God gives us this book for our benefits, and especially Exodus, that we can apply this practically. So when Paul wanted to exhort the Corinthians to persevere in the faith, he reminded them of Exodus. He says, I don't want to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud that passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses, into the cloud in the sea. Uh, then Paul drew, drew connections between their salvation and the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. He says, uh, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank uh, the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock in the wilderness was Christ. So when we find that there's a comparison in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is always compared to your salvation that you have in Christ. It is always compared to the salvation that we have in this wilderness. And what I want us to look at is the purpose of this, is that Israel was saved for the glory of God. That is the bottom line of it. You know, we often face with this, with this conundrum and this dilemma now, what do we do about, about Israel? Because they are, they're forcing you to pick a side now. Do you side with the, the, the slaughter of innocent children, Hamas, or do you side with Israel, the promise? What do you do as a Christian? Where do you stand? And I don't have the answer for you. But what I do know is that despite the sin and uh, the rebellion of Israel, it is not for their glory. He doesn't do it because Israel is good, but he does it for his glory because he made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God, out of his word, and he honors his word to the last, that he will save Israel. But we, I'm not asking you to pick a side, but I'm saying what's happening in, 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 in that war right now is that God, despite their Rebellion, God still saves them. And what he's done yet wasn't because of their faithfulness, but because of his faithfulness. God saved them for his glory alone. God is after one thing, and it's not your comforts. God is not after your benefits. He's not after that new, that new four by four or whatever blessing that you want. God is concerned with your holiness and his glory because God wants you to be holy. That is his ultimate end, which is why we have sanctification. Sanctification, the process where we be molded into the image of Christ. And we are justified already, but we are being sanctified. And one day we will be justified. And God is concerned with you being holy and not you being comfortable. And this is what God does. He saves us for the glory of his great name. So what the rest of Exodus shows us is that God's overriding purpose, namely, is to glorify himself. This is the central theme that is expressed in four short words, that we are saved for God's glory. That is the chief end of God is to glorify himself and he still does it today. But God, these words are especially true. And we see this, we see this evident here as when God lamented that he had made these people and rescued them, he said, I'm gonna destroy them, Moses, I'll make a new nation out of you. Let's start again, don't worry. I, uh, you know, these people are rebellious, I can't do anything with them. And then Moses does what? He appeals to God's, to God's nature in saying, Lord, if you do this, the Egyptians that you destroyed will ridicule you and say that you, you save them for nothing and destroy them in the wilderness. For your glory, Lord. He appealed to God's glory and the, the mindset that God had and God said, okay, I will lament, I'll, I'll relent, I'll let, them, I'll let them go and for my glory. So we understand that God does things for his glory, for ultimately his glory. In heaven, one day when we're sitting there, it'll be to the praise of God. We'll all be given crowns, but we will have no choice but to throw those crowns at his feet to say, we don't deserve this. You've done all because no one can boast in what they've done and what they've achieved as much as I can lord my, my friend and pastor's uh, diligence in reading the scriptures and quoting and doing all of that. Even he is not worthy. There's nobody who's worthy. There's nobody except God because God does things for his glory. He sent his son. He gives you the faith to even believe in him. He gives you the gifts. Yeah. This is the God that we serve, family. And he does things for his glory. Yeah. So what I want us to do quickly, I want to introduce you to the second character. And um, just 
you know, Israel alone is, is a miracle in itself. If we understand quickly the brief, the brief history of Israel, God chose this nation, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, we get to this point of Exodus, God, we go through the Old Testament, Kings, Chronicles, all of these, these uh, the Old Testament books, the prophets, they go into slavery, Babylon, Syria, all of this, and we get to a point where they are from the point of Babylon, where they cast into slavery in, in the land of Babylon. Israel has never possessed their land fully. They were always under subjugation or under some sort of rule from somewhere. Babylon, Assyria, Mesopotamia, the Romans, even up until the, even up until the point. And when we get to, to where God says, God prophesies that I'm going to send you into slavery. We understand uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, right? For the know the plans and the preceding verse, he says, I'm sending you 70 years into slavery. 70 years I'm sending you. And from that point, Israel has never enjoyed the fullness of sovereignty and having their own control over their own land, they were always enslaved because of their rebellion and disobedience. And God makes his prophecy in Isaiah 11. And he says that I'm going to gather you from the four corners of the world. He prophesies like a, like a hen gathers her chicks to him, to herself. This is what the, the picture that God is creating here. He says that I'm scattering you across the world and Israel and the Jews were spread across the world. Look at, look at World War II. You find them coming from Poland, from South America, from oh, every obscure corner of this earth, the Jews were spread. And how did they stay so ethnically pure? The Jews stayed ethnically pure. You don't find colored Jews anywhere in the world. They struggle to find that they're ethnically pure. They do not mix. And you find Jews coming from every corner of the world, still ethnically as pure as they were in, in, this, in this book. And this is the, 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 the protection and sovereignty of God because he says, I'm going to gather you like a hen, gathers her chicks to herself. And you find that after World War, after the atrocities that Hitler had done to the Jews, that you find that the UN has to make a decision about Israel, this nation without a nation, without land. And they make a call and the one swing votes is Russia. And they decide because Russians probably thought that they were communists and then they make this choice to say, give them the land of Israel. And from that point, Israel becomes a nation for the first time in thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. How do they stay ethnically pure? How do they possess the land? God promised it. That's why we can trust this book. The promises in here, irreversibly true, irrevocably true. This is inerrance. It's un uncontested. That's something like that. That is a miracle in itself. And you get to the late 40s and then they make this call to say, Israel will have the land. That's why we find this contention because there's a prophecy in the Old Testament that said that they will possess the whole of the land and not without strife, and I don't know how it will play out, but that is, a, that is the history of Israel, and this is the promise that God made to Abraham that is being fulfilled in our time. We are living in these days, family. So that is the first character I want to introduce you. The second character in the book of Exodus, as we mentioned, is this, uh, this man called Moses. Now, I want to do a quick, quick case study and just find a couple of lessons also from, from here. We know that Moses did have his, his bad side and there was a couple of issues that he had. He was a murderer. He, he, you know, he had doubts. He didn't trust himself. But when we look at uh, the book of Hebrews, and I want us just to look quickly at Hebrews. You, you're welcome to turn there. If not, you, I'll, I'll read it for us. But Hebrews 11, and we'll read verse 23 to 29. So this is the chapter of faith in Hebrews. It's talking about um, um, talks about Abel, talks about uh, Abraham, it goes down to Moses. So we're at the point now where the writer of Hebrews is, is talking about these different uh, heroes of faith. Hebrews 11, 23 uh, reads as follows. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he was grown, grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God more as to, to be to be mistreated with God's people than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of heaven for he was looking to the reward by faith he left Egypt not being afraid of uh, the anger of the king he endured as seeing him who is invisible by faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled blood so that the destroyer uh, of the firstborn might not touch them by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, by, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Amen. God bless us, the reading of his word. And this is now the writer of Hebrews talking about this, this main character. This is Moses now. And saying how he is justified by faith. And what we need to understand that the writer of Hebrews was writing to a group of Jewish believers that who just heard the gospel message, but not yet coming to the faith of Jesus Christ. So, 
Their understanding of Judaism at that point was a system of works. We need to understand that Judaism isn't the Old Testament, Old Testament Judaism. Jesus contested this. You bring in your own rules and your own laws in. Since when we need to wash our hands? He's like, oh, your disciples don't wash their hands. It's like, I didn't find that in the Old Testament. They brought in to the, to, into the religion a system of works. You are justified by works. And this is one of the greatest, greatest, greatest tragedies is that you say that you can be justified by what you do. We are saved by nothing more than grace alone and by faith alone in Christ alone, to the glory, glory of God alone. This is the basis of our faith. We've done nothing to deserve this, and we can do nothing to deserve it. That is the basis of faith, and this is the gospel that, that this writer is talking to them. So the gospel just came to the Hebrews, to the Jews. So they were, they were convinced of this, this gospel of works. So the writer of Hebrews goes, makes a point, and he goes all the way back to the Old Testament, and he says, let's go look at where this faith thing originates. He goes and talks about, he goes and talk about uh, Abel, and he says, Abel, by faith. You know, he sacrificed, he showed us how to walk by faith. And then you find he talks about Abraham, how he, uh, how he is justified by faith, by, by obe uh, being obedient to God. So the story of Moses covers Exodus all through to Deuteronomy. So you find that uh, from the book we're reading now all the way to Deuteronomy 34, the penultimate. Um, he wrote the entire five books, Genesis, Exodus, all the way to Deuteronomy, except the account of his death. Somebody else had written that part. And uh, the assumption of the Jews was that Moses was the model of the law. He wrote the law. He had written the, the Levitical uh, laws, thou shalt not take foreign woman and all of these different things. But he had written all of these things and he would have been the archetypal view of what the law is, right? So it's called the Mosaic law. This is the, the poster child. This is the, the front runner of law. So the Jews would have looked at Moses as a legalist. So they would have been, they would have thought at Mo Moses as a legalist. This is uh, doing things to earn your justification. So the amazing thing to say here was that Moses operated in the spiritual realm, not by law, but by faith. He wasn't a legalist. And the writer of Hebrews lays the faith of Moses to show us that what he done in faith was evident by his choices. So we need to understand that what choices did Moses make? And I want to just bring out two truths from this passage of scripture that Moses shows us how faith acts in terms of decisions. So each, of, each and every one of us here has come to a point of believing Christ, I trust. We believe Christ. And our decisions have changed subsequent. We don't do the things that we used to do. We don't love the things we used to love. The things I used to love before, I cringe at those things now because I had a different mindset. Paul says, oh wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? The mindset that we have now because we have faith in Christ, automatically our decisions change to align with his will. And you can't help it, but you're being conformed, right? We are conformed. We are being transformed into the image of Christ. This is just the life of a Christian. So like Moses, when he came into faith in, in, in God, his decisions changed. So this shows us what he accepts and also what he rejects. And I want to look at what does faith reject. Um, so firstly, in verse 24, it says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So firstly, he rejected the prestige. He, he, he rejected the allure, the, the grandeur of being the prince of, of Egypt. So you can imagine what that might have been like for us to have a little money in our pockets. That gives, you know, that money in your pocket gives you a little bit more pep in your step, that bounce, that swag. You feel, now can, you can imagine having everything your heart desires, everything, chariots of gold, servants, everything your heart desires. And he rejected, he says, by faith, when he has grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So he rejected the wealth, the status, the honors of being a prince. Exodus 2 verse 10 says, when the child grew older. Now, what I want us to look here is that the Bible is not explicit in his age here. It says when he was older. So we, we know the context, right? The, the basket goes down uh, the river Nile. Um, this Egyptian woman, which is the, the, the daughter of the Pharaoh, takes, um, takes his child and then uh, raises and then uh, so, so it just happened to be that Moses' sister is walking and watching him and she's like, oh, do you need somebody to nurse the child? I'll go fetch somebody. Brings his mother. What a privilege and God's provision. He says, no, I'll go get somebody to nurse this child. And Moses' actual mother nurses this child and it says when he grew older. So when he grew older, the Bible is not specifically saying what age, it just said older. It could have been one year, it could have been 10, it could have been 15. So um, it's, it's likely that his mother would have wanted to hold on to him as long as she possibly could, but also train him in the ways of the Lord. You've got to understand what parts of the Bible did they have at this point. They didn't have Exodus. All they had was the context and the, and the, the oral knowledge, which was Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So when we understand that context, she would have taught them about the process. Uh, the, she would have taught Moses about the promises that were made. 
There's this kingdom that is unshakable that is coming. There's a savior that is coming. There's this promise that is made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. All of these promises that we find in Genesis here, that there's a savior coming and now you, you will crush his head and you will bruise his heel. All of these contexts, these prophecies of Christ would have been given to him in this time because Jews were very proud about passing this heritage and this lineage. That's how they maintained their culture, even to the point of World War II. So uh, they had the promise of Abraham, Joseph dying in hope of the promised land. Uh, there would have come a time where God would lead his people out of Egypt. That was prophesied in Genesis. God would send them a deliverer and an ultimate deliverer, but that is the one who would hold the scepter in Genesis 49. says, Judah, the scepter will not depart from you. Talking about the, the lion of Judah will come from, from his loins. So Exodus 2.11, it says, one day when Moses had grown up. So it was 40 years between, roughly 40 years between verse 10 and verse 11. So you see a big time jump here. And Moses was learned in the wisdom of the Egyptians and uh, mighty words and deeds. And these were the years that he had spent in Egypt. So he learned how to write. He learned, how, he learned different languages. Moses was intelligent. And this notion that we have that Moses was a stuttering person, that he couldn't get a word out, we need to reevaluate that Moses was, he had intellect, he had intelligence. He wrote these five books in a time where paper was scarce. He had intellect, he knew languages, he knew the Assyrian languages, he knew the languages of the surrounding lands. Moses was intelligent. And uh, it says one day when he had grown up, um, so he was 40 years old. So where, Moses, where does Moses make the decision to throw away this prestige? We find it in Acts, Acts 7. Stephen is making this great sermon where he gets stoned to death. He's making this great sermon talking about the Jews and their hypocrisy. And he says in Acts 7.23, Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer, he defended and, defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they had, did not understand. So he had already began to realize that God called him to be Israel's deliverer at this time. He went from the palace to be identified with slaves, traded his, his riches for rags. He rejected what the world has to offer because he knew God had a better kingdom and reward and higher calling. And church, I want to make that same appeal to you. The world offers you so much great things. Many people walk away from this great, great, great promise. You've known, you've tasted of God's goodness, and you turn away thinking that there's something better because each man is drawn away by his own lust when he's tempted. Since Satan won't come to you with something that you are unfamiliar with. He comes to you with the thing that you like. Yeah. That's all dark and handsome, that, that nice car, that whatever it is, that prestige. And Moses rejected the prestige. He says, I don't want what the world has to offer, even for me to become a slave, to, to give up all of my riches. Moses Grew up in luxury. There wasn't anything of the struggle we grew up in. Hey, we ate bologna and bread. Even if you had bologna, you were lucky. You know, we, we, we grew up with that, where things were rough back in the day. And we, we had to work our, our way up now where we can afford nicer things and, and dress nicer and have these things. But we still have that memory where we turn the lights off. Hey, you, don't, you never know. They might come again. We, but Moses never had that. They didn't cut his lights. Moses had lived in luxury his entire life. So all he knew was luxury and he gave that up to be a slave, to be identified with slavery for the purposes of God, that obedience. And that's why I'm saying we need to have that same mindset of, of Moses, same mindset of Christ, that what does it profit a man to gain this entire world and lose his soul? So Moses made that decision there. And the second lesson, and the second uh, lesson we can learn from Moses' decisions in faith is that he says in the next verse, it says, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy, enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Family, I'm going to say something controversial here, and I'm, uh, someone can start the car that sin is pleasurable sin is nice it feels good to the senses otherwise we wouldn't do it we wouldn't involve ourselves with that boy or that girl when we shouldn't have we wouldn't have touched that substance that made us feel good we wouldn't have stolen that thing that gave us a, a rush we wouldn't have put our foot in the club we wouldn't have drank that first thing we wouldn't have smoked that first thing we wouldn't have ventured into that that path if it wasn't nice Sin is nice, and I can't lie to you and say, no, it's not, it's not nice. I mean, taste it for yourself. You're like, hey, actually, it's lacquer. And it's, it feels good. That is the appeal of sin. Sin is appealing to the body. It's appealing to the senses. That's why they say the spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. And these two are contrary to each other because to align with God means to deny yourself. That's why we fast. We fast from pleasurable things. The Daniel fast that we call, he says that there ain't no pleasurable thing, not even salt or spice, no slop chips. He didn't enjoy <laughs> That fast, nothing pleasurable. It was rough. And that is the thing of the flesh. The flesh, that's why we tempted in three areas. This is loss of the eye, what we see. It's nice to look at. 
the lust of the flesh, the thing that feels good, and the pride of life, this thing of puffing yourself up and feeling good about yourself, thinking that you're greater. These are the areas that we attempted in. So he rejected the sin. Sin is fun. And there's plenty of it. Plenty of sin in Egyptian culture, especially if you're a prince. Imagine what would be withheld from you. Nothing. If you want all the sexual pleasures in the world, it is at your beck and call. Any type of substances would have been at your beck and call. Everything that was available to you would have been at your beck and call as a prince. Moses was willing to turn on his back on all of that. All of that. He wanted to give it all up to become a slave with his people. And he's reminded of the pleasure of, of passing sin. So um, these are the lessons that we learn from Moses. And introducing it to Moses, I want to take us, and, and I'm going to close on this. It's just I want to introduce you to God in the passage here. And when we read this passage of Scripture, and I'm going to read it very briefly. This takes us to Exodus chapter 3. And Exodus chapter, Exodus chapter 3 reads as follows. Now, we know the story, right? From Sunday school, from you reading your Bible, you would understand that uh, Moses is now 40 years old. He's, he's, he's out in the wilderness there, and he, he, he sees this burning bush in the distance. And he's like, let me go investigate. Let me go see what's happening here. So we get to verse 7, and it says, And the Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the oppressed of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard they cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I also seen the oppressed with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you might bring the people of ch uh, the children of Israel out of Egypt. But Moses said, Who am I that I should be sent to go to Pharaoh, that the children uh, that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you, and uh, this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve the Lord God in the mount in this mountain. And Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, God, the God of your fathers has sent sent me to you, and, uh, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Amen. So powerful passage of scripture. And like I said, we had silence from God until this point, and then you have this encounter with God. So it is key. Scripture is focusing and emphasizing this. And I just want to cover a couple points, and I'll release you. So firstly, there's three I am's in this, in this picture. Moses, when he approaches the, the, the burning bush, and he says, he calls out to Moses, beckons to him, and Moses says, yeah, I am. And that's echoed in when, when God approached Samuel. And he says, Samuel, where are you? And he says, Lord, yeah, I am. And also when he approached Isaiah, and he says, yeah, I am, Lord, send me. So this is a call to service. Lord, I'm ready. What, what you need? Send me. Do what you need to do. So you find this readiness that Moses comes into this, this, this passage with. So verse 7 contains three verbs. And I want to look at this very quickly, that God says, I have surely seen the oppressed, the oppression of my people. Next, he says, I have heard their cry. And last, he says, I know their sorrows. So when he says, I've surely seen, we, we must understand that God is introducing himself here. Moses didn't know God in the context that he knows him here. This is a, this is a personal encounter with God. So before we knew God for ourselves, we were wondering and we knew the theory of who God is. We heard about this God in the heavens, this impersonal God, this, this higher power, as people like to put it. But we're not talking about Yahweh. This is now when he says, I am who I am, he's giving him his name, first name basis. I am Yahweh. So when God says, I've surely seen, we can rest assured that God sees what is going on, even in this cruel world today. I have this cousin of mine and... Uh, he is very anti-God. He was saved at one point. I don't know how saved he was, but he was saved. And he came, comes out now on social media and every encounter, anti-God. Anti-God. This God that allows children to be killed and uh, people to have cancer. And he's got this very negative view of who God is. And my thing to him is that we need to understand who God is firstly. We cannot start our lives and we cannot base our faith on a God that we don't know who he is. And this is God introducing himself saying that I surely see what's going on. But God allows free will in this world. He's not a just God if he doesn't allow us to choose. And God sees what is going on in Egypt. And likewise, in today's society, we registering this weekend to vote. 
And your votes may be in vain, I don't know, and maybe this will continue, but we trust in a God who sees and hears all of this and who will deliver us and will make us prosperous. But he also says that I, I've heard God is not blind, nor is he deaf. This is what he's saying. He's introducing his characteristics. He's not blind, he's not deaf. Also, he says, I know the sorrows that they have borne. God is not ignorant. We serve a God who knows all, who sees all, who's sovereign, who has seen the beginning from the end, allows certain things, and God allows this. But God is introducing himself on a personal level. He's not saying, I am God. We say God, but God can be applied to many contexts. There's one Yahweh. There's one Yahweh. There's one God who reveals himself in Scripture in this way. Exodus 3, uh, verse 8, 10, and 11, God announces then his purpose for this divine visitation, right? He says, listen, this is why I've come down onto this burning bush. I'm sending you. So Moses asked him a question. Um, Moses, after he says, listen, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to deliver the children of Israel, Moses' first response to God is to ask a question. Who am I? After saying, here I am, yeah, I am, Lord. Send me. Use me. He then asks, who am I? You see the inadequacy immediately, immediately hitting him. When confronted with the holy, perfect, amazing, powerful God, you, you have to look at yourself as inadequate because you realize, you echo the words of David, he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Like, what, what, is, what is, I know me, like, I live in this body, I know the thoughts, I know the actions, I see myself daily, and I know the inadequacies. What am I? Like, who am I that you are mindful that you even think of me? And you hear me when I call. This is Moses' response. He's, he's confused about his identity, he doesn't know, and it's not an existential thing, but it's like, who am I that you can even send me there? He, you knew, he knew as a, he was a deliverer when he was striking the Egyptian down, but now he's questioning that when confronted with God. So we can't, we can't know who we are until we know who God is. Because what we do as human beings is we look, we look this way, we look horizontal, we look terrestrial, we, we, we look down and we compare ourselves. Hey, I'm better than this, this guy at least. Hey, at least I'm not as bad as that person. At least I don't murder people. You know, Maybe I do my, my things here on the side, but hey, that, that prize is, is worse than I am. This is what we do as people. We compare ourselves to each other. But when compared to the glory of God, we all will, will pale in comparison. We'll bow down. We'll lay prostrate before God and say, who are we? Who are we that you are mindful of us? And this is Moses' response. It's like, I'm inadequate for this task. Send another. We see this also in Isaiah 6. Uh, when you read the accounts of Isaiah 6, God had taken Isaiah in a vision into heaven. And he saw, and it says, in the year that King Hosea died, I saw the, the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, and you see this praise happening, that the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy. And what is Isaiah's response? He says, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm glad. I am undone because I've beheld. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. When you behold God and you compare yourself in, in, in relation to who God is, you realize how inadequate and worthless and useless you are, but that God would use you is amazing. So Isaiah had that same echo where he saw God high and lifted up. His response was to pronounce a curse unto himself. Isaiah found out who God was. And that day, God, Isaiah found out who, he, who Isaiah was. Yeah. So if we would but turn our gaze from the terrestrial, we would tremble as we are aware of our own feet of clay and our frames of dust. We are nothing. So in verse 12, God doesn't answer Moses' question. God has, has a habit of doing this. He doesn't answer his question, who am I? But he responds with who he is. And he simply states that I will be with you. God has promised to be with you. He's promised that he'll go with you to the ends of this earth. doesn't matter what, even if you don't feel it sometimes. Sometimes we feel like God is not with us in, in the storm. God promised that he'll be with you like he did with Moses. I will be with you. Don't be afraid. He, that's his simple statement. And Moses directs his interrogation from who I am to who are you. So he turns his gaze now, and the first thing that God reveals is that God is personal. This is a personal God. This is not some terrestrial bully in the sky. This is a personal God who wants to know you one-on-one. -on -one. If you do not know God, God wants to reveal himself on a personal nature, to know you one-to-one. -one. There's nobody who knows you better than God. When I pray, I say, Lord, you know my thoughts. You know the deeds. You know everything in detail. You know how I got to this place. God knows everything about you, and yet he still loves you. This is the God who revealed himself to Moses, who wants to reveal himself to you today. And whether you feel inadequate, and right here I stand here feeling inadequate, I'm not worthy to even be up here. There's much more profound speakers, there's much more eloquent pastors, there's much more didactic teachers out here. I am not worthy. But God would use even a donkey. He can use me, and he can use you. And this is the God who is on a personal level. He, he wants to reveal himself personally to you. So... 
when there's just want to close with the story that there's this lady named Mary and Mary walks into a workplace new wedding ring on and you know when you just married you got that fresh glow ring is yeah oh over there no you know that that barnas hits you strong and Mary walks into work and they're like oh Mary did you did you get engaged and she's like yeah of course and um, so they ask Mary what is it about your husband John that you love so much you know you say you love him uh, you know I love this man what is it about him you love oh he's just so handsome and it's like yeah but you know um, Jack Dave is a model you know like he's, he's do you think he's handsome as well yeah yeah he's handsome so why don't you love him it's like well what else do you love about him is like oh he's just so athletic you know it's like oh Michael there's a captain of the, the soccer team he's athletic why don't you love him in the same vein it's like uh, no 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 he's, he's, he's also you know he's, he's also uh, kind and then he's like, no, so-and-so gives to charity. Like, why don't you love him in the same way? He's like, what is it about John? And this woman's getting visibly annoyed. It's like, what is it about John that you love so much? He's, you know, it's just, he's, he's just John. That's why I love him. And in the same way, much is revealed in the name. She loves John in the same way that, that, that God loves us. He reveals himself in a name. He is, I am. I am who I am. That is his name he reveals to himself on a personal level, on a first name basis to Moses. So he's wonderful. his name is wonderful, family. His name is glorious. And in that name, he reveals manifold things about his excellency and about his being and his perfections and his character. God is introducing himself here to Moses at this burning bush, like he is making a call to each one of us. Now we are on different levels of our journey with God, but God wants to meet you on a personal level. God wants to know you. His great desire, the reason he sent his son down on a cross was for this opportunity to be able to reunite it with us. That's what scripture teaches us. So this is my encouragement for us today. That rather than looking at Israel and Moses, all of these broad characters, we look at God. We look at God who reveals himself. God is perfect, he's glorious, he's amazing. And when we look at him, we look at us. And we look at him and we look at us and we see we're inadequate, but he chose us. And he chose fellowship with us. And this is God's great desire. Why he done all of this. The history of mankind. From Genesis 1, 2, everything are perfect. You get to 3 where man falls. And all the way up to the last 3 chapters of Revelation. When things are restored. Everything in between. is God doing this great work of reconciliation between you and me. He wants to know you. He wants to be part of you. He wants to dwell within you. He wants to make a tabernacle in your heart. How privileged are we that the creator of heaven and earth, the universe, wants to dwell within this broken creature. This is the God that we serve. He loves us tremendously. He is amazing. And he reveals himself as Yahweh. The God who was and is and is to come. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. The first and last. The author and finish of our faith. This is the God that reveals himself personally. Not some obscure God who we don't have to know. And just obey him like other religions do. So I want to close. And let's pray this morning. And I will, I will close this message. Father, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you reveal yourself just like you did in the Old Testament. Lord, you are good. And Father, we don't understand your goodness, Lord, but you are just so tremendously good, Lord. Father, you, you bless us even when you don't deserve to be blessed. Lord,